Welcome to Grassroots Nation, a podcast from Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies, a show in which we dive deep into the life, work, and guiding philosophies of some of our country's greatest leaders of social change. Aloysius Fernandez is an economist and social worker who has dedicated his life to work in development. Born in Burma and trained as an economist, Al Fernandez prepared for a life of service in the church and was ordained as a priest in 1953. But when working at Caritas India in the early 1970s as its deputy director, he was witness to the Bangladesh refugee crisis, where he saw abject poverty and suffering, and the blight of poverty on people in times of drought in Maharashtra and in other parts of our country. And these experiences led him to leave the church in 1976 and pivot to working in development full time. Aloysius Fernandez spent over 40 years at Myrada, where their work transformed the idea of financial inclusion and microfinance and pioneered the self-help group model in India. His work in the 1980s with the primary agricultural credit societies in rural Karnataka led to a deep understanding of the value of community, of learning from them and supporting them. Myrada began forming self-help groups and in 1987, NABAD, the National Bank for Agriculture and Rural Development, provided the first social venture capital to these self-help groups, setting off a veritable self-help group movement in India and laying the foundation for microfinance in the country. Aloysius Fernandez has held many illustrious positions in his career, as the Deputy Director of Caritas India, as Executive Director of Myrada, as Chairman of the Board of Sangamitra Rural Financial Services. But Al Fernandez's contribution has been so much more. He has been a mentor, a guide, and a lodestar to many people working in the social sector. Al Fernandez was awarded the Padma Shri in 2000 for a lifetime of development work for India Samaj. In today's episode, Al Fernandez is in conversation with his colleague Vidya Ramachandran. So you have been known as a guru of many things. You have been known as a development expert, as an economist, as a conservationist who's been devoted to watershed development, as a person with expertise in building organizations, as a public policy influencer. There are many areas in which your name keeps cropping up in development circles. But your early days were spent steeped in uh, philosophical studies and religious training. You have been a member of the grand edifice of the Catholic Church. You have described yourself or referred to yourself as a diocesan who has been groomed by Jesuits. So how much of that interplay of philosophy, religion, diocesan, Jesuit tradition influenced your subsequent growth as a person concerned with poverty and the need to work on issues related to poverty? Good question, Vidya. You do mention this interplay between diocesan and Jesuit influences, but there was a third major influence in my life, and that was my family tradition. Now, for 200 years, my family has provided priests and nuns to the Catholic Church. It's part of the tradition. And I, having been brought up by my grandparents since my parents were abroad, was expected to carry on that tradition. So when I was about 14 years old, I think, I 
joined the seminary, uh, the preparatory seminary. After that, you go to a major seminary to study for the priesthood. Now, there are many seminaries in India, uh, many that train the diocesan clergy. Diocesan clergy is those priests who run the parishes and all the rest of it. But there is one major seminary, it's called the Papal University, uh, which was located in Candy Salon for years, and which shifted to Pune uh, just before I was selected to go there. This university uh, could give degrees, which were recognized by various universities, and it had students from all over the world. So there was a rich interplay of people. So you, sometimes you had the best football team, because we had Italians and Spaniards, and the best hockey team, we had Karachi people. Uh, but there was also good interaction. Now that was run by the Jesuits. Now, what was the major difference between that Jesuit training and the training you got in other dioceses and seminaries? And this is this. The Jesuits not only taught us theology, like scripture, which the priests are supposed to do, but they tried to give you reasons from history to buttress your faith. They just didn't say, believe this, believe that, but they gave you reasons, and they had to be verifiable reasons. They also quickly absorbed the teachings of the Vatican Council, which was at that time when I studied in the late 50s, early 60s, had come out with very open Catholic Church. It, it was open to Indian philosophy. Many of us studied Shankara. We studied Basavana. In fact, I wrote a paper on Basavana since I was from Karnataka. And Mahatma Gandhi was very popular. But they also stressed social justice, the Jesuits. Now, let me give you an example. See, you can draw quotations from any religion to justify anything. As we say, the devil can justify himself from scripture. Now, you have this in the Bible, the story of Jesus being the good shepherd who looks after the sheep and looks after everybody. But you also have the story of Jesus who whipped the moneylenders and chased them out of the temple and said, you have made the house of God a den of thieves. That is a different picture of Jesus. Now, it all depends on which picture you follow. And the Jesuits followed both. So you had no choice to make. They just didn't keep to the Good Shepherd, which is usually the dominant theme in the Catholic Church. You never hear about Jesus chasing out people. So you had first the Jesuit, uh, second the Vatican Council. There was another influence. See, like any university, apart from the lectures, you have a lot of extracurricular things going on. So you have one group doing uh, Indian art, one Indian philosophy, somebody doing something. And you also had a group who ran some courses on students who had been in the Young Christian Workers' Movement. Now, the Young Christian Workers' Movement was originated in Belgium and France, where workers were organized in groups. And the methodology was see, judge, and act. Now, you saw, not just look, there's a big difference between looking and seeing. Then you judge in the context of your belief, and you act it, and then you reviewed your action. And one of the instruments of this methodology was keeping a diary. 
So all those who joined this group had to keep a diary and note every day what they saw. Uh, and it was it helped us a lot. This also had an influence in my life. So when you were still a part of the church, you spent your early days in the area, Bryan Square area and City Market Majestic, that area where there were a lot of poor people at that time. Does your work from that time carry indications of your orientation towards economics and also towards uh, building uh, organizations? Yes, I guess every experience in life, in my life at least, had an impact. Uh, I must also say that um, Vatican Council taught that the Catholics were one body, they were one community, one samaj. And I was quite happy about this. But since my training also was to see, judge and act, and see, not look. When I was posted in St. Joseph's, I was posted by accident for five months, four months in St. Joseph's. The rest of my life was as an administrator at the Archbishop's house. Uh, but so for me, this was something new to be in a parish. And I had a great time. Uh, but I just wasn't uh, somebody that could just do the usual parish work. The first thing I noticed was this big Samaj idea it was not reflected in the church. Because when I walked into the church, uh, the center, which was the biggest portion, was, was occupied by all the poor people. And the right side of the church was occupied by the richer people who were sitting on benches and chairs. So it was not exactly a Samaj to me, which I had been taught to believe. At least it didn't look like a Samaj to me. If, there, if it is not economically homogeneous, if it is not socially homogeneous, it is not a Samaj. You can call it a Samaj, but it is really not a Samaj. Another example I can give of this is the cooperative society, which I discovered when I joined Mayrada. Uh, the cooperative is an instrument of development, which the government of India has promoted. Just like the Panchati Raj is the instrument of governance, which the government has promoted. And Mayrada was working with the cooperatives. But the cooperative is a word, what better word for Samaj can you get than cooperative? Cooperation is community. But when I started working with the cooperative, I found it was not a community. They were not helping one another. In fact, they were using the, the heads of the cooperatives, the president, secretary, treasurer, all came from the rich families in the village, from the upper classes. And they used the cooperative to exploit everybody else. They would uh, borrow money from the cooperative at 5% to 7% to 8% and lend to other members of the cooperative at 40%. And if they borrowed money, the poorer families, they had to work for these larger people. And the rich used the Samaj to exploit the poor. That was the bad part of it. This is how the Samaj ran. So you have to be very careful. Uh, if you put a cooperative or a community structure on a society that is structured or by power relations, it doesn't function like a Samaj. So, you have never experienced poverty yourself, but you have talked about how the church sometimes enables you to experience 
poverty which is why probably so much of conscientization and all that work in india has been uh, spearheaded by the church so maybe you want to yeah. say something yes. about the the whole thing of conscientization really um, was uh, it came from south america it was part of south american philosophy but when i got introduced into it was very interesting it was in a group of students in bangalore who had read paulo freire's pedagogy of the oppressed and they were not students from or they belonged to families who running the press one is still very active uh, police uh, government and well off children and i got interested in this pedagogy of the oppressed because to me I found that there are no teachers and students, and according to Paulo Freire, teachers and students both learn together, both question together, both reflect together, and both participate in action. You don't just talk about it. This is another version of see, judge, act, and review, really. But the seeing was deeper here. It was not just beyond looking. but the seeing was applying tools of structural analysis now i did pursue this methodology of using this structural analysis in the early 70s when i studied sociology in the university of louvain belgium and i gradually began to see because we used to get experiences from all over the world south america where this uh, ideology was used i began to see that while this approach led very often to violence it often did not change the system one set of pressures were replaced by others now during all of this of course uh, the good old marx and his das kapital was a popular book in those days and all of us read marx and in fact uh, i read part of it where he wrote part of it in brussels which is today a, a pub but once we got a bit disillusioned we would have a glass of beer after every few pages and that helped us to really <laughs> give a balance you know like i'm not certain if all the stories are true but that was the the myth behind the place so i began to get disillusioned with these big ideas and i began to realize that change has to come from the bottom it all and it has to come over a large sector of people who in some way have a common cause now what exactly that was is difficult to say because it changes from section to section from strategy to strategy from country to country but it did help me to see that the way forward was through small groups of people and one good example of this success is the uh, whole rabo bank of holland which is based on cooperatives genuine cooperatives uh, because people are all economically homogeneous they are not from different castes or communities and it was only the rabo bank that survived all the banking crisis that had uh, affected the world but it survived because it was based on small communities the rabo bank after all the experiences that shaped you because you belonged to the church you uh, also had the experience of dealing in the rubble of war uh, and you have then thereafter have maintained that war disaster is also a good training ground for development 
So, would you like to talk a little bit about that war experience and why you think disaster shapes people in positive ways too? The war was the Bangladesh War, 1971, uh, where I was asked to go and look after the refugees. So, I left my studies in England and came back to do that. But I was just told in Bombay that uh, uh, there's a problem. And there was no TV in those days, so we knew much more about what was happening in London than you knew in India. But I was told by Cardinal Gracious, there's a big problem, we want you back. Uh, money is promised from all over the world, but somebody has to run the show, would you come and do it? I said, well, and I, we don't have a choice, so do it. So here's your ticket to Calcutta and here's 10,000 rupees. You'll get it from the secretary downstairs. That was my introduction to development. As I said, we were given the opportunity by our Jesuit education to have reasons for our belief by the Vatican Council to be open to other sets of beliefs. And all this was within the framework of the Catholic Church. So you were protected by the Catholic Church. And a person in my stature, which I was pretty high up in the structure, I was almost at the level of what you could call a joint secretary in the government. Uh, life was, was fine, I mean. But in Calcutta, the situation was, the whole ecosystem collapsed. There was no, uh, no sort of church influence around me. It was the refugees, it was this, it was that, it was politics, it was the government. And um, it was a new ecosystem. Now, once you are outside this protective ecosystem and you began to see things, you began to realize there's a whole new world. I wrote about this in my book. It's on page 377. This experience challenged several of the beliefs in which I was grounded as a priest. I was trained to be detached from worldly events. But how could I be detached from the suffering of people I had come to support? with the objective of providing whatever little was possible to keep them alive and healthy till they returned to their homes. Their sufferings and deaths were enough to undermine my detachment. I had been trained to consider myself to be God's chosen one. I had been taught to believe that I had been empowered to bestow God's forgiveness on others for sins they had committed, a mobile Ganga as it were. What sins had these people committed to suffer so much, except to vote for the wrong person according to their oppressors from West Pakistan? They voted for Mujib, if you, uh, you may not know, which would have made Mujib the president of Pakistan. Yet I found strength and power in several of the refugees I interacted with. I had been taught that Catholicism was the only path to salvation, and therefore conversion to Catholicism was the only way to reach the Supreme Being. Here I found thousands of local people who were not well off, but were willing to share what they had with their fellow human beings. Surely they too would find a place in paradise. This experience of disaster changed a lot of people's lives. Uh, IBM was still functioning in those days, and I got quite a few people from IBM who joined me. And what I saw was that they never went back into the private sector. They all went into development and, you know, 
And uh, so did I. Uh, there was one more thing I must admit that I was definitely consumed by a strong ambition to rise in the church. Uh, one reason maybe I thought you had to be high up to change the church. Uh, but there was also this ambition to... Uh, and I had all the background. Like I had what you would compare to IIT and IM. That's what I had in the church. So you were already sort of selected to be somebody. But what happened was the Bangladesh experience knocked that desire out from me completely. And it was not only Bangladesh, it was a cyclone in uh, Orissa. It was the Bihar drought. It was the Ramnar drought. It was the Maharashtra drought, all 73, 72 and before. All of these droughts and cyclones resulted in several NGOs, several volunteers who today are the NGOs all over the country. And in our own case, I used to tell this story to my radar that you may have come from MSWs, but until you have experienced this, you will never understand development. So then you left the church. The church lost you to the secular world. So you went, you went to Selyok and then you were a teacher for a while. Then you went to Sida and you went to the, showed up at the wrong Sida. And, uh, but then you decided to stay on there. And then eventually Mairara. Now, that was a difficult part of my life. Uh, this happened in 75, 76. And by that time, I really had lost all the essential beliefs on which my whole uh, priesthood was founded. And uh, sort of the last little breaking point was I had a major conflict with the director of... I was the deputy director in charge of operations, but there was a director who was a lay, very conservative layman. And um, I had a big confrontation. And at uh, that time, I suppose I sort of decided I had enough. Uh, somewhere or other, I walked out of Karitas. I, all I did was sat on my scooter. I had my personal scooter and I left. I used to stay in the Bishop's Conference. So this is a big con In Golda Khana, you know, if you see, there's a big red building. One room was mine, bathroom, toilet and common dormitory. Uh, so I just walked out. And that night, I uh, decided uh, where to stay. So, uh, fortunately, there were <laughs> some Tamil families who had come from Burma. We have a Goan Burma background, and my uncle was a priestess. So, I uh, I was passing by. I said, we go and see how they are. They said, what has happened? I said, this has happened. So, they said, you stay here tonight. So, I stayed in their place tonight at night. And I next day, I went back to Karitas to collect some few things. And then I got a message from the secretary saying, there was a call from the Canadian government asking for you. So I said, what do they want? They said, we don't know. They said, they want. So I took the number and I called them. There was a guy called Rod Haney, Roderick Haney. He said, oh, by the way, would you like to work with the Canadian government? So I said, yes, I'll work with you. He said, for six months, we have a contract. I said, okay. I asked him who the hell told me, told him about me. This was in 87 or something, 86. But the basic story is, when I was working in 71 in Bangladesh, one of the Canadian guys called Andre Jengra had worked with me and he told uh, Rod Haney that in case you want somebody in development, you catch this fellow. So he said that was in our mind, nothing was working all this time and our programs are not going anywhere. So uh, you come and tell us what to do. And uh, But it was only a six months contract. And then some friends of mine 
asked, uh, wrote to me and said, see, there's a poster for there's a tutor in development studies in the Selio Colleges in Birmingham, which is attached to Birmingham University. Would you like the poster? I said, yes, six months is here. So, so that's the time I married Deepika also in this time. So I went off to England. I got that all called it. Beautiful 82 acres. It was a Quaker and I'd heard of it. The Mahatma Gandhi stayed in one of the colleges. It was called the Quaker College. And uh, it's a beautiful place, nice life, tutorial, you know, the methodology. But after about a year, uh, one of the Canadians wrote me an aerogram saying, I'm sure you're fed up with teaching. Why don't you come back to join us on your own terms and conditions? So I said, okay. So I said, let's go back. He said, what, you want to go back? I said, yes. So we went back and, and I just said, keep a house for me. So they got, a, there was a house in Vasant Vihar. <laughs> All the Canadian governments have those houses. And that's how I came back to, the, uh, to India because I was happy there, but I was not satisfied. I want to do something in development, yes, but uh, development in my own country, I said, go back and do it. So uh, we came back to India and... Uh, and we had five, four, five years the Canadian government. And then I got fed up again with the Canadian government because uh, once you have reached a certain stage in the government, you you get things done very easily. So you, you because we did not have the South Asia partnership I conceived. So I formed a committee in every country, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, which vetted all the proposals from India. So the, they took the decisions. And then you had a South Asia Partnership National Committee in Canada, which then received these proposals and selected them. Now, this opened the whole doors to people. And in order to encourage them to do this, we started with the nine to one. We said, for every one dollar the NGO raises, we will raise nine. We meaning? Sida, I was in the government. Yeah. So we will raise nine. The South Asia Partnership took off in 82-83 um, internationally as a concept. And by that, I came to Bangalore in 82. And by the time we had organized, it must have been about 84 or 85. So this was a power sh shakeup. And it lasted for many years in Bangalore. The other big program I did was what we call the Country Focus Program. This was in 1980. <laughs> and so I said, we will get NGOs involved, but with government money. So you're not talking about uh, 1 million Canadian dollars. We were, you know, you're talking about much more than that. Now, we said, what are the country focus? At that time, we said alternative energy. <laughs> we said forestry. And we said uh, soil, dryland agriculture. Uh, that time, the government said, why not Mrs. Gandhi and all the bio, uh, biogas, you remember, it was very popular. So we picked on biogas and AFPRO was the NGO. And in Canada, it was Interparis. So we gave them the money and uh, AFPRO ran the program in India. And Marado also was it. Uh, got, we were one of the biggest biogas promoters in those days, thousands of them. The second program was the uh, Ryland Agriculture Project. That we signed at the last minute and uh, we, we took up uh, in Andhra Pradesh in a big project. 
Uh, they wanted somebody to be the um, partner in India. So I decided to leave Sira uh, and come to my rudder. Uh, and then and we changed the agreement with the government at the last minute and made my rudder the local partner. So that gave us some money. This decision was made at the last minute, which means I had to leave Delhi and come to Bangalore. So we made this decision. So, when you came to Mairada, this was 1982-83 and Mairada had uh, sort of uh, closed with the Tibetan programs, working with Indian communities and working on the cooperative society model, but just sort of getting the hang of uh, self-help groups, which were not yet, you know, called self-help groups or whatever. Now, you have always maintained that uh, the self-help group has been a discovery and not an invention, you know. So, why do you say that? An invention is something that you sort of come out with, you discover, you invent. A discovery is something like you find that something that's already there, okay. It's like you discover gold, you don't invent gold. Now, in order to do that, in most cases, when we look for gold, we try to invent it and not to discover it is the problem. So, because we are so loaded with our own baggage of our past, our education, our in fact, I found the people who succeed in life, when they come into development, are the biggest failures. Because they have to de-school themselves. There's one lesson that Ivan Illich came out very well with, and I run classes on this. You cannot get jump from one sector into another sector unless you de-school yourself. You have reached perfection in one. But if you apply the same learnings to another sector, you're bound to fail. So what the biggest problem in the Mairada was, how do you really de-school sufficient number of people? Therefore, you have to have certain priorities. For example, I said, I have this five lakhs, I would like to put it in training my staff. Now, this training, uh, I avoided having an office. We could have built a beautiful training center in Bangalore. We said, no, we will train in what we have done, point one, not in what we are talking. The trainers will be the people, not we. Thirdly, training will not be given uh, randomly. That means we will not advertise training. Uh, people can come from different organizations. No. You have to come from one organization, 10 or 15. But if 15 people come, there is a critical mass that can go back and achieve something in that organization. And we will ask you what you want. And we will send you to that project which has succeeded in doing what you want. And we also introduce several methods in this because to, you, to shed your baggage is not easy. See, so there are some of these methodologies that helped us was PRA, Participatory Rural Appraisal, which was nothing else but <laughs> uh, Paulo Freire's conscientization approach where the people and you study together, analyze a problem together, design the budget together, implement together. It's a learning on both sides. And appreciative inquiry, that's something new. Uh, which we learned, because what struck me was, if, in simple, if people 
are living in a situation of scarce resources, uncertain income, and yet they have survived. So they must be good managers, no? It's, it's to me very obvious. They must be good managers. So appreciative inquiry helps you to sit down with the older people and say, what are the problems you had in your history that you recall? And how did you manage them? And they then begin to see that they had so much of strengths. Now, we also realize that in those days, the most popular classes in development was problem tree analysis, uh, needs approach. But if you work on problems and needs, you make people dependent on you. And they will always be dependent on you. Why? You're going there with education, you're going there with money. It's so easy to put the problem on your back and the solution on your back from their back. But if you believe that people have strength, then you look for them. We don't believe people have strengths. We go with ready-made solutions. This is the problem in our whole development situation. So, and so we began looking for strengths. And what were the strengths we found? One was that people had this relationships of mutual trust and support, which we called affinity. This existed in India. That's how India survived. If you looked at the floods in Bombay some years ago and the floods in New Orleans, you could see how the communities responded so differently because there is, um, in Bombay, there's affinity. There's people supported one another. Help. If you look at the whole Bangladesh operation, why did the people support these refugees? With some sense of affinity. And so in the village, there's always a group of people. If they want something, they'll go and ask. So we said, build on the strengths of people, not on their needs. And that message, I think, was very strong. Now, to identify people's strengths in my days was very difficult because the entire thing was needs, needs. And unfortunately, needs is what... See, if I feel that somebody needs something, I feel that I'm doing something good. If I feel that people have some strengths, then I'm a bit, you know... <laughs> But we have to accept that people have strengths and yet they need our support. And that's a not an easy thing to arrive at. See, when you say people's strengths, is that also one of the things that um, help you think that instead of getting people from, let's say, a Pradhan or an Irma or somewhere else, you have staff already in the organization these staff are drawn from amongst the communities that the organization is working with, which means they also have some strengths and therefore they can be, um, you know, this whole training program can enable them to function as, uh, you know, more professionally. Or did you, because I remember that there was some uh, talk about bringing people from outside and then exposing them to rural development and then making them live in rural areas and, and work there, and you did not choose that approach. No. To me, Mairada was very fortunate in getting staff who were all graduates. In those days, jobs were difficult to find. So very often, they couldn't get jobs because of reservations, they couldn't get this. So And many of them were from the rural areas. And I realized when I walked across with them in the village, I would try to ask, is this common land, is this private land? 
These guys did not need to ask. As they walked, they knew that uh, from the look of the land, the Sir, is the common <laughs> Goma land, is the law private land. They know. They don't need to be trained. So why not use those strengths? The other issue that we talk a lot about is soil. They know what is good soil, what is bad soil. But we will bring also the gadgets to find out. No, they know. Uh, they will just pick up a soil like this and they'll open and tell you, sir, if it, this is no, this is not very good. This is good. This and this. These are the things which we need. This was uh, PRA. PRA was nothing else but using traditional methods and then putting it in a nice graph and chart so that people get impressed. I remember one day I was in Kolar. It rained quite heavily for half an hour. So I went out to people and said, Tomorrow I banta, so you can do sewing tomorrow. One woman said, I said, why? You had good rain. Then she poked a finger in the soil and she said, see, the heavy rain, nothing went in the soil. It has to go so much in the soil. So, whereas if you had gone and looked at the rain gauge, you would have found enough of rain to sow your seed. For her, it was not. So, we have forgotten to see these, these strengths. But the point is, it's while people from the local area, their skills are often looked down upon. Because if you, well, you won't ask them to take the soil in their hand and tell you, you'll bring one big document to paper and say, uh, pH factor, this factor, that factor, it has to go to for soil testing and all. So you tend to downgrade their skills. But at the same time, it's also difficult for people who come from outside to shed their baggage. So hey, those who have been in the field and spent time in the field is a different different. So this this is a double sort of approach. You have to get people from well-organized institutions to shed their baggage and you have to get people from the rural areas to really, in a way, understand their own strengths. Then you are, have a level playing field on which they can exchange. In 1991, India liberalized its economy. Here, Al Fernandez speaks to Vidya about that moment. But one of the things that kept my radar together also was that, uh, and I put this in my book, is that our salary structure was very flat. Because when this took place of uh, Narsimha Rao's time, I happened to have a meeting in Delhi with quite a few senior government officers who thought that I would uh, be against liberalization. Naturally, I'm an NGO. So I said, to their surprise and to their shock. My dear friends, the people I work with have lived in a liberalized economy all their lives. So they got a shock of their life. I said their salaries are paid according to the market. They borrow money at high rates of interest and they hire and fire. I said all of us here are the guys who are subsidized. <laughs> Every single one of us is subsidized, not them. Today, 50% of our GDP, 45 to 50, is in the informal sector. And over 90% of our employment is in the informal sector, perfectly liberalized. Now, I wrote a paper on this for the World Bank years ago and was severely criticized when I said, an informal sector is not a load of free riders. Informal sector in national economics is looked as a load of free riders. In a country like India, it's an essential part of the economy. So you have to 
take them into factor them into all your decision making and today it is a lot of problems we are having on account of the inability to factor the informal sector into our into our planning therefore the reforms of 1991 were perfectly important but the one problem which i think uh, is becoming more obvious recently and the self help group movement will give you an example the self help group movement was really an effort to shift the informal people in the informal financial system which was exploitative to the formal financial system that was the effort but it did not say tomorrow morning you will all open an account and you will get money and you will draw money nobody has used it there's been used for drawing money but not for taking loans because it the two systems don't fit so the self help group was an intermediary system which the people designed they said we'll start with savings we will lend our savings we will not fix the interest rate will depend if it's for health you will give you can give less if it is for something else you give more we will not ask you to repay every month for example if you buy sheep okay and you will sell after 6 months you repay only when you sell the sheep not the uh, all the finance models today is you repay immediately the next month self help groups never said that so there was a stag there was a repayment period which was adjusted to the nature of the asset okay uh secondly it said you give money when you can because income in the rural area is lumpy it doesn't come an emi there's no equal monthly installment in the rural area whereas in all our systems it has to be equal monthly installment uh, i have uh, several self help groups in kharwar area which are fishing they catch fish one day and they want to return the money because they get a good catch you say no 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 you have only to return so much because you uh, that's the system so that did uh, so the self help group but what helped them was each of them visited the bank on in turn so they built up a relationship with the bank and when we asked them what they benefited most from high on the list was we are now respected by the bank so so many many self help groups on their own after they saved in the group opened their accounts in the bank but it took time whereas today you want to do that immediately you want to take the farmers you want to tell them there's no not going to be any procurement tomorrow you deal with the with the with the market so could work they have no idea how to deal with the market there has to be a transition strategy today you want your desire and your gratification time difference to be 10 minutes no you can't do that Uh, in development it takes a little time and if you don't understand this we got problem there's another example that you are um, fond of using one of the women in a self help group said today when i when you go to the bank the bank manager pulls out a chair and then orders um, a coffee or a soft drink and we want to reach that stage where when we go to the bank the bank manager pulls out a chair and offers us coffee you know but it is gradual and it cannot happen across one the other one that was about a lady who questioned you about whether you wrote your own books of account 
that empowerment does not mean that i know how to write yeah. my uh, we often identify empowerment with the skills we have not necessary empowerment really comes if allowing people to develop themselves and the self help group was an atmosphere where each one could develop themselves everyone has potential some may use fully some may not use fully but they must have the space they don't have the space in the family the husband is there mother in law is there so they need a space to develop themselves in fact when i first started self help groups the men hated it. they came and cut them by the hair and pulled them out they threw stones on the door then they burnt they burnt the hay on somebody's home where they were meeting on the roof okay and for a long time they would like to eavesdrop they would listen to what they were trying to say i mean it creates a, it obviously shows us a different power center emerging now the self help group was an institution in an institution everybody has equal power that's an institution we learn from the rotary club that you change your president every meet every year so we used to have that rotation also so everybody became president so so what we built were institutions which were empowering let me give you a very practical example when we started with a devadasi program in the case of devadasi the strategy of the government said we take the devadasis and we will put them in we've got land we will put settle them there give them two acres give them a cow and some weaving machines so i said one thing missing they said what i said you put a red light there that will become a brothel which has become they had another model called gayatri colony which has they did this it's become a red house red house area so we changed the whole strategy and uh, from resettling devadasis to keeping them where they are reducing their vulnerability so we started with self help groups devadasis self help groups and in 1991 one devadasi i was identified she ran away when she was first met but by winning her over and making her a self help group member and training her she gradually came up because she had used her potential and she, we then formed a society of ex devadasis called mass m a s s whatever it stood for and she ended up being the vice president and president of mass Now that's empowerment to you. Sitawa Jorati is a social activist and former Devadasi who has worked to end the Devadasi system in India. ಈ ಸಂಸ್ಥೆ 4800 ಜನ ದೇವದಾಸಿ ಮಹಿಳೆಯರಲ್ಲ ಕೊಡ್ಕೊಂಡ ನಾವು ಈ ಸಂಸ್ಥೆಯನ್ನ ನಾವು ಹುಟ್ಟು ಹಾಕಿದೆವು. She is the CEO of the Mahila Abhivriddhi Samrakshane Samsthe or MASS an institution of former Devadasis. Devadasi paddatte marali barbardu. MASS was established with the support of Mairada and the Women Development Corporation. The former Devdasis were trained and formed into small self-help groups that provided financial support. Samsthedinda nava sarkariyinda sahay solebagalan thagonda namma yalla devdasi mahilerge girbodo, aur makkerge girbodo, aur mamma kerge girbodo nava vatti naga. Sitawa Jodati was conferred with the Padma Shri in 2018. See, one of the things that you have said is participation is meaningless unless it is rooted in institution building, and therefore, participation on its own, you might as well not even attempt it. You know, 
So when you say that, I mean, what exactly do you mean? Why is participation meaningless unless it's institutionally anchored? See, in general, uh, this word participation is like God. Each of us has a God, what we call Ishtadeva. And each understands participation differently. There's nothing wrong with it, but it just we understand it differently depending on the context in which we are functioning. For example, Vairad is an NGO. Its objective is to make people independent. Its objective is to give them power and to set them up separately. Its objective is not to keep them in an institution like a company has to do. Attrition in a company is not looked at positively. Attrition in Mairada is looked at very positively. In other words, if a person can stand on their feet and separate from the organization, the Mairada has achieved its purpose. For Mairada, participation has no meaning if it is does not include power. Participation for Mairada and in development when you are working with the poor is how do you empower people. Therefore, I call it effective participation. Yeah, just like in, in economics, you have effective demand. So the, the people may be hungry, but they have no money to buy food, so it's not effective. So people may want something, but they are not able to manage it. So it has to be effective. Now, how do you make this effective? Myrata, we discovered that the first way to make it effective is to build on people's strengths. People's strengths, not on people's needs. How do you find these strengths? I said through appreciative inquiry, to personal contact with people, to listening to people. That's something that we don't do. Because we are so full of our education, our culture, we think we have all the answers to problems. And there are a lot of groups of people, all have strengths, that's common to everybody. What you need to do is to see whether they can achieve what they want to achieve with the strengths that they have, or do these strengths need to be enhanced? Okay, and then the question comes about what, what skills you give people. Now, in the self-help groups, what happened? People discovered that they needed an institution which could give them fast credit, credit without exploiting them, contrary to the cooperative society, where the secretary and president of the cooperative society is to give them loans but also demand higher interest and make them work on their fields and make them like bonded laborers. And so, because they wanted this, the self-help group started where they saved and lent from their savings. So, in that case, they needed skills. So, we had to introduce training, how to meet regularly, how to have an agenda for the meeting, how we kept the minutes, you know, how then training on financial issues, basic literacy, numeracy was what they wanted. So, in order to handle their financial transactions, they needed certain skills. So, depending on what they want, you have to, you have to provide them to achieve what they want to achieve. So, it differs from group to group. And to finally conclude, if you empower people, people will then become independent. 
as I said earlier, we had learnt in participatory rural appraisal to hand over the stick. And if you know, the stick is never handed over. The stick has to be taken away. And it can be taken away only by an organized group of people who are empowered, which is what Mairada wants to do. Therefore, when I get an institution that Mairada started, like Meadow, which now manufactures all these uh, chains, watch straps for Titan, and for Tanishka does a lot of jewelry, they are on their own. They say, oh, don't they come and... Why should they come and... <laughs> They are operating independently, they make their own decisions. So then on the one hand, we have the self-help group uh, which started somewhere in some small village and then went on to become an international kind of a um, organization, known, you know, internationally known and practiced and across the world and all that. You also have things like Meadow and Mars. Meadow is um, management of enterprises and development of women is what it started as, as an ancillary to the Titan uh, watch company, but now an independent company on its own running without any input from Myrada for the last 15 years, at least totally independent. Mass is another organization, Mahila Abhivruddhimata Samrakshana Samste, which is uh, an organization of people who used to be known as Devadasis, who now call themselves ex-Devadasis and who are, again, an organization which has functioned for about 15 years or so without any connection with Mairada, right? So these are successful organizations, self-help groups, Medo, Mass. But then we also know that there are certain institutions that have not been successful. I would say, for example, watershed associations have had a lot of uh, effort invested into them and not succeeded. So what uh, contributes to some institutions succeeding and some not succeeding? When we started in Gulbarga, where watersheds emerged, we started with self-help groups first. And uh, the self-help groups, you had many in the watershed because they were uh, poorer people up, mainly the poorer, the, the richer fellows were all in the cultivating at the bottom of the watershed. So when we went to organize the whole watershed, we brought the self-help groups of the tribals and the poorer people who had lands on the upper watershed who were already functioning with the richer people like, who had lands at the bottom of the watershed, where the lands in the valley where the lands were good. So after one day explaining to them in my broken Kannada with the help of translation, why we wanted watersheds, because we wanted to make the water walk and bring the soil back to life. <laughs> From the ridge, you know, the ridge is in the valley, the water should not run. If it runs, what does it do? Washes the soil away. Who's the one really that is affected? The people with land on the upper reaches. Their soil gets washed off. So I said, you must make the water walk. 
ಮತ್ತೀಗೆಲ್ಲ ರೈತರ ಹೊಲಕ್ಕೆ ಆ ನೀರನ್ನು ನಾವು ಉಪಯೋಗ ಮಾಡ್ಕೋಬಹುದು ಮತ್ತೆ ಆ ನೀರುಗಳನ್ನು ನಾವು ಭೂಮಿ ಒಳಗೆ ಇಂಗಿಸಬಹುದು ಯಾವತರ ಅಲ್ಲಿ ಉಪಯೋಗ ಆದ ನೀರು ದೆನ್ ಐ ವೆಂಟ್ ಟು ದಿ ಆರ್ ಸೆಂಟರ್ ಐ ಕಾಲ್ ಫಾರ್ देम ಆಲ್ ಫಾರ್ ಅ ಮೀಟಿಂಗ್ ಅಂಡ್ ಲಂಚ್ ದೆನ್ ದೇ ಸ್ಯಾಟ್ ಡೌನ್ ಇನ್ ಫ್ರಂಟ್ ಆಫ್ ಮೀ ಫಾರ್ ಡಿಸ್ಕಷನ್ ಐ ಸಾ ಇಮಿಡಿಯೇಟ್ಲಿ ದಟ್ ದೇ ಸ್ಯಾಟ್ ಲೈಕ್ ದೇ ಓನ್ ಲ್ಯಾಂಡ್ ಇನ್ ದ ವಾಟರ್ಶೆಡ್ the richer farmers who cultivated land sat in front the ones in the middle who were the poorer ones were behind and the tribals who were on the top were somewhere lost to the top so it was reflected in the seating arrangement therefore the lower people when i said make the water walk because i want the soil up there they said no we want the soil down we want to harvest soil we don't want soil to be there sorry so there was a conflicting issue See, so we had to resolve all this we did resolve it by showing them how if the water stays up they have water in their wells for longer period of the year if they are able to reforest all the watershed they get more all this we had to show them but it took some time so there again is a samaj area they were not a samaj they sat in different groups those self help groups however when we then wanted to form affiliation the federations of groups all the tribal groups federated from different watershed they didn't federate with these watershed but they kept their power they began to be were independent those watershed groups lasted for a very long time what happened in other places we had in myrada had introduced this concept of the government giving money to the watershed group not to myrada myrada gave the watershed directly to watershed I thought that in the self help group Dr Rangarajan he was deputy governor of the reserve bank he had given permission to the banks to lend to self help groups which were not registered because I had said that they don't want to be registered because some petty government officer will harass them he said they must keep accounts yes they keep records yes so he told the banks lend banks they are not registered said lend now i assume that this would happen with the watershed group i was wrong government is not the reserve bank government said no we will not give money to the groups unless they are registered now what was the result of that that we had to form the watershed groups tomorrow because the money had to come we didn't have the time to start the self help groups of the poor people and all the rest of it we had to start it tomorrow otherwise no money could come and therefore the watershed groups in most areas where government funded which were 80% of the project were all the as a, were given to water, watershed groups which were not really formed as associations we didn't give any much training the poorer people had no say in the matter but they worked in terms of planning and all that they worked but the poorer people did not get the benefit like in our watersheds gulbarga the question they asked was there are landless people in the village watershed only benefits the landed people what about the landless and they decided on their own that all the landless were in self help groups they could take loan they could buy cows and all the vacant fields in the watershed we have many absentee landlords the watershed association signed an agreement with the absentee landlord and said we will cultivate trees on your land the tree belongs to you but the loppings will be given to the landless people to feed the cattle 
See, now this didn't happen elsewhere. So there was no mutual support elsewhere. So the association didn't last long. But they had a limited objective of contributing and planning the watershed budgeting and implementing. What I find now is many of them have broken down into self-help groups. Some have become farmer produce organizations, some this, that and the other. But as watershed associations, they have not succeeded. So, what you are saying in effect is that unless you invest time in building them in a certain process, that the process is very important and that you cannot speed it up and you cannot circumvent processes in order to achieve your yeah. own agenda. Yes, you see, the other issue is this also. In the watershed, you have uh, what was the role of the watershed association after the project? It was to make sure that the individual farmer maintained the structures and it was to make sure that the larger structures like the dams were looked after by the panchayat. Now in many cases it did not work. Panchayat had no money so they couldn't do it. But the small farmers on their own realizing the, that there was value were maintaining the farms without the watershed association insisting on it. So maybe we were expecting too much of the Watershed Association. Yeah. Too much too soon <coughs> yeah. with too little resources yeah. Yeah. perhaps. Well, let's come to now, you know, a field that you have been also as closely associated with as um, natural resources and organization mm. building and all, which is uh, microfinance. Okay. Now, there is a lot that you have talked about the self-help group program. You've talked about the bank linkage program. You have been uh, responsible for Sangamitra Rural Financial Services. You have been associated with NABFINS as its founder, um, chief executive. Now, at one time, the emphasis was on cutting-edge uh, interventions, innovations. I remember phrases like, we should not be the only one, but we should be the best. Let a million Sangamitras bloom and things like that. But those possibilities now somehow are disappearing. What is happening in the field of microfinance? First and foremost, giving small loans did not start with what we call microfinance. The government of India had several programs since the 60s which were giving small loans to agriculture. And the biggest one later was IRDP. So it's not something new. First was the self-help group movement, which started in Marada in 84, 85, 86, and was accepted. And NABAD at that time and RBI were looking for an alternative to IRDP, where there were no subsidies. This was the biggest issue. And it's a non-subsidized program, and uh, where the recovery would be much better. In the late 80s, uh, first I should say, uh, thanks to NABAD and the Reserve Bank of India, between 87 and 91, they made various studies. Uh, they gave 1 million to my brother, made various studies. And in 91, 92, they decided to have a program called the Self-Help Group Bank Linkage Program, where the bank would give a direct loan to the self-help group. Okay provided it kept accounts and so there were three big changes that the RBI and NABAD made. One was to lend to unregistered self-help groups. 
because that was the first time. Second, to give them a bulk loan and let the group decide how to lend. This cut down the work of the bank, the cost of the bank. You didn't have to make much, just one loan. And third, no physical security, but they were insured if they were animal. So this worked very well. But I realized that many areas, the banks were not doing this. So that is why Sangamitra started to work in areas where the banks were not lending to the groups. And I said, if the bank comes in, we will withdraw. And we did this in Chitradoga when the bank came in, the good bankers, we said we will withdraw. This was all very well, 95, 2000. And we had a social objective to help the poor in remote areas who were not getting bank loans. Uh, by 2000, this became well known and uh, Sangamitra was, the, the, I think, the first organization to apply for this uh, license. But we our license was, you know what, says Sangamitra cannot take deposits, cannot do this, cannot do this, cannot do this, cannot do this. Does not say what we can do because in 95, nobody knew what the hell we can do. But by 2000, uh, the Grameen Bank became known and the Grameen Bank is a banking concept. It is very simple, it doesn't require any change of policy. So, uh, many people began following the Grameen Bank model of giving small loans. They also had groups, but the groups were more groups that ensured some kind of joint liability. Though how it was done, I am not too certain. There were no savings. The self-help group started with their own savings because they had, and they were lending their own savings before the bank came in. Bangladesh had no savings till 1995. Then they started savings. Then I realized one day, I said, but how did you build up savings so fast? You know what it was? It was compulsory savings. They were cutting off part of the loan. And so much so by 2005, what they had saved compulsorily was enough to really manage their whole portfolio. So the poor had really lifted themselves up by their own bootstraps. It was their own money they were getting back. So self-help group was completely different from that. They, they, had, they managed their own money. They, they, the bank lent money to them at 10% interest. They added 1 or 2%. So they were lending at 12%, 13%. Whereas... All these uh, Grameen Bank now were lending over 20%. Now we began adopting that model of Grameen Bank. We adopted their software, we adopted, and the whole thing broke down into individuals. Sangamitra was giving one loan to the group, just like SAG Bank linkage. Now came all the software where it was individual loans. So we have things called grading organizations, rating organizations who come and assess us to see whether you are keeping these rules, otherwise you don't get loans. Now, they could not understand what is this loan to a group. So it had to be individual, otherwise your grade becomes low and you don't get a loan. So the entire Grameen model was transferred into India and the self-help group was pushed aside. And the self-help group didn't bring any money to Mayrada. We trained the groups, but the money remained with the group. Whereas the Grameen model brought a lot of money to the people who started. Grameen Bank today uh, is a thorough profit-making organization. The founder says that actually it functions like a very full-fledged profit-making institution. 
That doesn't mean it didn't have an impact. It gave money to people, working capital, this. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that it runs like a professional bank. It makes profit and the people have pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, which is correct. That's not the self-help group movement. But today, the whole microfinance in India has adopted that model, which is a for-profit model. And unlike Grameen Bank, which made some efforts to go on peeling the onion so that they went poorer and poorer, nobody is in India, no one is making that effort. That I grant to you. So in India, it is a purely profit. And they are lending at 24% yesterday, I found. Some are lending at 26%. How can people invest in any productive enterprise? So the problems now with the present model is one, they have, because there is no security, there is no physical security, the loans are all 35,000, average 35,000. So what can you do with small loans? You can only, uh, you can't even buy a cow for 35,000. Secondly, they are, uh, they are repaid after one month, you have to start repaying. Thirdly, there is, you, there is no uh, physical guarantee, so they charge high interest rates. 24%, how, what can you do? Which businessman will take a loan? Fourthly, there is no support after you give the loan to people who want to do something new. You learn and you get the money back. So it, and they're all making profits. The salaries are high. Today, they have distorted the entire salary scale. You can't get anybody today with less than 5 lakhs a month. So, I'm not happy with the model. So, I want to introduce in, in this whole system larger loans where people can invest in something productive. I want to introduce in this model that the repayment schedule should depend on the asset. For example, I have in Sangamitra now, we are lending to fishermen in Karwal. Now, one day they catch fish. Some days they don't catch. When they catch fish, they want to return the money. We say, no, 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 you can't return the money. You can only return so much. Because this is how much. It's an e EMI. We adopt the EMI. So we need to have a system where your recovery is based on this. Where we give people management support, technical support if required, after the loan. And use your CSR for that. So it has to be tailor-made. We need a software and I think we have getting a software. It's a, a open source software to look at all this. Now, in order to push this, I've started one res research program with Harvard Institute and Sangamitra where we are experimenting with these new types of loans, larger loans, post-loan support, uh, no fixed repayment schedule. And uh, we have, and on our own, we've also tried this thing. So this has to change to my mind. For me, what I hear is that relationships have to dominate once again. Uh, yeah. Not technology, but relationships. Yes, relationships and customization. If you want to uh, shift to this new customer, you have to meet people. In our new model that we are adopting, we have we go before the loan at least three times and assess the people, what are they doing, how their business is doing, how it's working. All this, like for example, yesterday I had a meeting with my team and they said, no sir, we will postpone the loan of the hotel because the road is just being made and he, he has... Now, that is customized loan. That would not have appeared in a regular type of thing. So, there is no customization today, it is all standardized loads and it is fast. 
So there is speed today without consideration of the road being constructed or not. Because the, we are lending in the informal sector. It's not organized. Ultimately, if you want to do microfinance, the cost of loan has to come down to 10%, not 25%. So I want to conclude this with uh, something again, you know, it goes back into the realm of civil society, if you call it that. But there's something that you have always talked about. You have talked about the fact that we are not working in isolation. We are part of a larger system. And this system includes the government as one of the major players in the field of development. It is the largest player in the field of development. So what you have said in the past has been for an organization like Myrada or like Sangamitra, civil society, not profiting, concerned about the poor type of organization is you work with the system wherever it is possible. You challenge the system wherever it is necessary. And you develop alternate systems where both working and challenging don't. Uh, I, I would look at Myrada as an actionist. I would call myself an actionist, not an activist. But the activists have a role, not that they don't have a role. If you just adopt a confrontation attitude, it doesn't work with the government. You have to present an alternative and say, give us a chance. And if you are lucky, you'll get people in the government who would say yes. Myrada was lucky with the self-help groups. We had uh, champions in the government. Myrada was lucky with the Devadasis. We had champions in the government. Myrada was lucky with the HIV AIDS program. We had champions in the government who supported us. So you have people there in the government. In the self-help groups, it was PR Naik. It was Dr. Rangarajan. It was Kotaya and Nanda. From NABARD and from Nabad the Reserve, and Bank for Reserve Bank of India. In uh, HIVAs and uh, the Devadasis, it was all these women. Women's Development Corporation. Uh, Development Corporation, IS officers from Karnataka. You know, I forgot yeah. their names, but Shobhana Mission was one. Then there was another two, three of them. Anita called. Anita. She was like, yeah. yeah. And Gurunani, Gurunani, Vandana, 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 Vandana Gurunani, Vandita Sharma was good. Vandita Sharma was there also. In all three cases, we had champion. They were all champions in the government. I am seeing that there are less and less of champions in the government today. Nobody is willing to take any risk. So without that, you cannot. You can do something on your own, but you are not going to be able to get it involved. Influence in policy. Yeah. Influence policy yeah. is no longer a possible. Very difficult. Not no, it's very difficult. It could be here and there, but it's difficult. So I hope that uh, things will change in some way or the other for the better. But uh, there has to be leadership today in every Samaj. Every Samaj is lacking leadership. Aloysius Fernandez, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Grassroots Nation is a podcast from Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies. For more information, go to rohininilekaniphilanthropies.org or join the conversation on social media at rnp underscore foundation. Stay tuned for our next episode and thank you for listening to Grassroots Nation.